The following audio is from The Village Church. More information about The Village Church is available at www.thevillagechurch.net. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hard black one somewhere around you. Uh, Don't own one. That's our gift to you. But let's start in Genesis chapter 2. I want to um, take kind of the ideas that we've been covering, uh, and I want to move them out of the realm of idea and get them down onto the ground, Uh, specifically uh, what we've covered in regards to justification, adoption, and sanctification. Uh, I now want to move that from uh, just ideas that are nice and, and plug it into really how certain issues play themselves out in our lives, mainly um, guilt and shame, anger, abuse, lust, and then next week we'll cover fear and anxiety. So it'll be a chipper couple of weeks. Uh, With that said, uh, I want us to start again with how God designed us and, and that design of us giving us insight into what God wants to accomplish in the person and work of Jesus Christ for his glory and on our behalf. Uh, And so with that said, Genesis chapter 2, we're going to pick it up in verse 18. I'm going to read a lot of verses here simply for context, and we're just trying to get down to verse 25, but I think it's important for you to see a single verse in regards to its context. So here it goes. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is the first song in the Bible. My good friend, Pastor Leonce Crump in Atlanta says this is the first R&B song in the Bible. And he says, here's what it says. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now the big verse for our time together is verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now you keep your shirt on while I unpack this text. Uh, All right. When we're talking about the idea of nakedness and lacking shame, what we're really looking at is that God creates man to walk in innocence and honor so that God's plan for you and God's plan for me in the creative design is that my life would be marked by innocence and it would be marked by honor. See, as a human being, we alone, as human beings, stand uh, higher than anything else in the creative order. We alone have been made in the image of God. So that means you and your dog are not of equal value, right? This means human beings and whales are not on par with one another. This means sea turtles and children aren't on the same line of worth and value. Now, should we steward the environment? Absolutely. So I don't want that email from you. All right. But, but to line up these two things as, hmm, sea turtle eggs or children, 
Gosh, it's a toss-up. That's not, no. You, as human beings, we have an intrinsic value that's beyond the value of anything else in the creative order because we and we alone have been made in the image of God. So God's good design is that you and I would have lives marked by innocence and honor. But if you've read your Bible, you know there's this thing that happens in chapter 3 and we're literally going to watch innocence and honor dissolve before our eyes. Let's pick it up in verse 7 of chapter 3. Um, sin has now entered into the world. Man has rebelled against his creator, the creator that made them innocent and full of honor. Now, um, now they have rebelled against that God, and we're going to watch what happens starting in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, I'll just stop there because we literally just watched it disintegrate. Uh, We watched innocence give way to guilt, and, and we watch honor give way to shame. So now the normative human experience is no longer innocence and honor as God rightly designed it, but rather our lives are marked by guilt and shame. Now, here's what's interesting to know. Uh, guilt and shame are often talked about as though they are synonymous, but they are most definitely not. Both guilt and shame are falling short of some sort of standard, but guilt carries the connotation of a legality, all right? It's a falling of a clear moral code, but shame doesn't operate like that, uh, all right? Shame isn't so much a breaking of a clear moral code, but rather shame has more to do with how we see ourselves and how we fall short of how we see ourselves. Uh, and so maybe this would be helpful. Um, psychologists say that all of us have in our minds a portrait of the person we would like to be. Uh, they call this the self-ideal. So psychologists say, you and I, we have a self-ideal. We have kind of a heroic hero in our mind that's who we actually are. And when we fall short of that self-ideal, we begin to feel shame. So maybe if I can put um, scenarios around it. Um, if your self-ideal is that you are a hard worker who is disciplined and your reality is that you are lazy and undisciplined, you're going to walk in a type of low-grade shame. All right, if you feel like you are ferociously faithful and that you are not the kind of guy that would and not the kind of woman that would, and yet you entertain fantasies about those who are not your spouse, you flirt with a coworker, you play around online either with pornography or on Facebook stalking your exes, or in chat rooms or in those kind of things, that dirtiness you feel that that's shame and and that shame is there because you have fallen short of your self-ideal now watching shame and guilt interact with one another is is fascinating and so let me kind of explain to you how they intersect um this isn't unique to me actually david keys wrote a fascinating work on guilt and shame uh and i'm pulling most of this from him um so if at some point today you're going that guy's really insightful i'm really not i can just read uh and so uh here's guilt and shame and how they interact um the most healthy way guilt and shame ever interact is they work together. And so what I mean by working together is I might tell a lie and immediately feel guilty because I know that lying is wrong, but also feel shame because I think I'm a stronger man than that. 
I'm not the kind of man that needs to lie because I don't need you to like me. I can speak the truth in love and then let the cards fall where they may. And yet I felt like I needed to lie in order to be accepted, in order to, right? Do you see how guilt and shame began to work together? So I feel guilty because I violated a clear command of God, but now I feel shame because I thought I was better than that. Now, what I mean by this is the place where guilt and shame uh, are the most healthy is that when those two work together, they reveal that something's gone wrong in my heart. They, 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 they kind of take on a spiritual MRI or CAT scan type of role in our lives. When we feel guilt and shame, when we feel uh, unacceptable, when we feel dirty, we, we, that, is, that is the Lord kind of pressing on us that there is more for us. That goes back to what we covered last week about that eternal heavenly Father. It's like, no, 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 I have more for you than this. I, this isn't what I have for you. I have more. I have more. I want more for you than you want even for yourself right now. Um, and so they work together. There are uh, other places where they function independently from one another. And so uh, to give you some examples here, um, I can know that I've done something morally wrong and not feel any shame at all. I mean, doesn't our culture just, I mean, just is picturesque on this front. Uh, I can do something that is morally wrong and feel absolutely no shame for breaking what I know to be right and good. Uh, and so the Bible uh, addresses this in multiple places, but I'll take Romans 1, 28 through 32 because the list is extensive. Here's what he says. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Haters of God, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. See what I mean about this list is, I mean, no one's getting off clean in this List And then um, he continues, they are foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So this is, we know we're breaking God's divine law. We don't care. Not only will we do them, but we will approve of others who do of those also. In fact, we will applaud as they pursue rebellion against the God of the universe. This is breaking a law and feeling no shame for it. Now, it also works back the other way. There are times that we feel painful and debilitating shame when there's been no moral infraction whatsoever. Um, people will feel shame for all sorts of random things. Like some people feel shame because they're poor. Some people feel shame because of where they live. They feel shame about the car they drive. They feel shame about the clothes they wear. They feel uh, shame about the college they went to. They feel shame about where they're from. They feel shame, right? That, now, none of these, these things are all morally neutral, right? It's not sinful. It's not a breaking of the law um, to not have a lot of money or not live in a certain neighborhood or not. All of that goes back to a self-ideal that is way outside the bounds of God's ideal for you. All right, you've got the wrong heroes, You've got the wrong picture in your mind of what is acceptable and right. And so we can, in fact, what, a strange one, probably one of the more common ones in our culture is to feel shame over the way our bodies look. In our airbrushed Photoshop, way out your macadamia nuts as you eat paleo culture, <laughs> a, a lot of shame begins to be felt about the way our bodies look. And so now none of these, it, it's... 
there's nothing shameful about not having much money. There's nothing shameful about um, driving what, when I was a kid, we called a hoopty. There's nothing shameful about living in a neighborhood that doesn't require you to pay $1,000 every other month in order to keep everybody's grass the same length. There's nothing shameful about um, that, right? these things, they, but it's, it's painful shame. I mean, it's actually there. We, we feel unlovely. We feel unworthy. We feel dirty. We feel less than, but that's not guilt. That's shame. So see, they, they can work independently of one another. And then really the last place I think you see guilt and shame in their relationships work out is they'll work against one another. And what I mean by that is we can feel shame for doing what is morally right and, and we can, um, how did I word this? I said, uh, we can feel shame for doing the right thing and we can, we can um, have a sense of glory in doing the wrong thing. Um, and so we can uh, feel ashamed doing something that is morally right. So one of the things we see in the New Testament is um, Paul um, repeatedly encouraging the church to not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, don't be ashamed for it is the power of God unto salvation, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And again, to, uh, Timothy in second Timothy, for I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed in. And so you have this idea that we are prone to be ashamed of loving Jesus. That there is nothing more morally right than loving and serving and having your life shaped by the creator God of the universe. And yet we will at times feel embarrassed or ashamed that we do love him or we don't want to be seen as that guy or we don't want to be right. Uh, And then um, if you're paying any attention to the world around you, that we have built whole heroes around what is despicable. Um, So my wife and I went to a concert on Friday night. That that is total love deposit. It's not that I didn't enjoy the concert, not that I didn't uh, enjoy the artist. It's that I don't go to things that start at 1030 ever. And so I'm literally in my second dream, usually by 1030. Uh, and so went to this concert, wasn't at a church. Uh, and so it's a rare thing for me to be right in the middle of debauchery like that. All right. Our Christmas parties don't uh, boil down to that. And so here I am at this concert. We're having a good time. The music is incredible, but people will celebrate what is deplorable. And so you'll hear, oh, so wasted, I don't even remember last night. Well, congratulations. Like, they, he's bragging. I got so drunk, I don't even like, like, that's a banner of pride. And, and as a 10-year-old, as, as my daughter gets older and older, uh, I have a special violence in me for men talking about women. So listen, if at some point I disqualify myself from ministry, uh, and the elders aren't coming clean, that's what happened. Uh, if the elders are like, there was an incident, Matt is no longer with us, and you're like, what was the incident? I took a stick to some 17-year-old kid in my front yard, all right, and got arrested and will gladly, guilty, will now pay my price to the state. And so, because I can feel it, like when men talk about women as though they are property, as though they lack souls, when they prey upon the guilt and shame that exists in women for their own pleasure,
pleasure. Like I feel like a special kind of violence creep up in me. And maybe it's because I've got daughters and maybe it's because the house I grew up in. But I feel I want the wrath of God to come like Old Testament rolling down like a river. All right. I mean, I, I'm in. So just know if the elders ever get up and go, Pastor Matt isn't here. Uh, Josh Patterson is now the lead pastor of teaching. And, and you're like, what do you do? There was just an incident. That's what the incident was. All right. I'm not going to cheat on my wife. I'm not, but I'll beat a fool with a stick. All right. Messing with my daughter. So uh, when all said and done, I, I can feel that in me because young men celebrate this. They, they celebrate this kind of hookup culture where they just take advantage of and they use without any concern for soul, without any concern for humanity, without any concern for they'll abuse and use. And then they wear it as a banner of pride. In fact, I forget what the movie's called, Dawn Something, that's out right now. It's just a celebration of debauchery. It's, oh, isn't this guy cool? And people are flocking to this movie. Oh, isn't this awesome? No, it's awful. And our culture celebrates it with pride. Look at how big of an idiot I am. The prophet Isaiah says, woe to you who are heroes at drinking much wine. Right? It's this idea that I'm going to celebrate debauchery. And so this is guilt and shame uh, really working in opposite directions. Now, here's where we get ourselves in a crossfire of self-rejection. If you let your moral, legal code be the Bible, so you're good church folk, all right, you believe the Ten Commandments, you're going to believe what the Bible says, but your self-ideal has been built out and around with heroes in the world, you have set yourself up for guilt and shame regardless of where you turn. So when you show up at church, you're going to feel guilt because you're in violation of the law of God. But when you show up at work and the party scene, you're going to feel shame for being the goody-goody. And so you've set yourself up, really, to be rejected and be miserable at every turn. And guilt and shame will mark your life because your morals are in Jerusalem and your self-ideals are in Hollywood. Or, or for you businessmen in Manhattan. And when you do that, your life's going to be built on and around guilt and shame. And, and guilt and shame are wrung out of us and, and turn into other things. And, and so the one I want to talk to you about today, not one, but I do think it's all one, is anger, abuse, and lust. And so when you walk in guilt and shame, a byproduct of that is oftentimes, and yet not always, oftentimes uh, anger. So we feel guilt, we feel shame, we're falling short of our self-ideal, we're in violation of the laws and commands of God, and, and so we feel guilt and shame. And so that brings about anger in our lives. Now, anger first works itself out up and against ourselves. And so there's a form of self-hate that begins to form in our hearts. Let me, un, let me flesh out how this lurks. And I'm not speaking now uh, as someone who's read a book on this, I'm speaking now as one who has lived in this environment. I'm not speaking out of ignorance, but I am speaking out of experience. When self-hate exists, you will first 
abuse yourself. Now, how do you abuse yourself? Well, I mean, that range is all over the place. I mean, it's everything from um, cutting yourself, hurting yourself, but more than likely, it's just a giving yourself over to shame. It's since I am guilty, since I do feel dirty, then you give yourself over to the shame that you feel. And at that moment, you're saying, I have no honor in me. There's nothing good or lovely in me. So then you allow others to abuse you. You allow others to take advantage of you. You handle yourself cheaply as though there is nothing intrinsically valuable about you. You will stop taking care of yourself. You will stop. It is self-hate. It has its roots in anger that that anger is derived from guilt and shame. And then there are times that self-hate began to roll out onto others and that's where we get into abuse. And, And sometimes that abuse is just um, control and manipulation, a lot of times that abuse is verbal where, where you're going to attack and tear down and you're going to, see, to actually walk in legitimate biblical love, it's a risky, scary thing because you're known. Uh, like I can tell you right now, um, you, you would be hard-pressed to say something to me that would wound my soul. You, you really would, but my wife could do it right now. I mean, I could point to her right now and go, say it, and she could just like, pow, and I just die because she knows me. She knows where I'm weak. She knows where I'm fragile. She knows where she could touch that would wound me deeply because by the grace of God, I've let her in, and so I've got no secrets from her. She knows where I struggle. She knows where I'm weak. She knows where, and she could just pop me if she wanted to. Now, by the grace of God, she is, uh, I can honestly say in Coming up on 16 years together, I don't know that she's ever done that. Never tried to verbally abuse me. And, and yet, it's possible an angry people uh, walking in self-hate have a desperate need for no one else to be happy either. And so now you've got verbal abuse. Now you've got a tearing down of. Now you've got a dismantling of any other, every other buddy, everybody else's joy. So a person walking in guilt and shame will show up at your birthday party, but going to ruin it and make it all about them. Well, I walked in and nobody said hi to me, and you guys didn't even. Nobody did this for me on my birthday. Now they're pouting in the corner. What's wrong? Nothing. Just do your party. Why do I matter, right? They're going to make it about, they're going to dismantle and destroy. They're, they're going to pull you aside. It's always going to be your fault. It's always going to, they're going to verbally abuse. And then sometimes verbal abuse rolls over into physical and sexual abuse. Verbal and sexual abuse have at their roots guilt and shame that has led to anger that is built up in self-hate that now is spilling out of themselves onto others violently. And, and then the reason why I wanted to say that anger and abuse and lust kind of becomes the, the perfect storm is now you're in a circle where this thing's feeding itself. Uh, and so what I mean by that is, is if you're struggling with anger and that's built on your guilt and shame, then, then you're going to hate yourself. And so you're going um, to eat more than you should. You're going to drink more than you should. You're going to write. You're going you're to punish yourself because you're not worthy of anything. You're going to give yourself over to abusive relationships. You're going to treat yourself cheaply. You're going to put yourself in scenarios where you will be hurt. You will be betrayed. You don't have the dignity to go, "Uh uh-uh. And and then that's going to build what? More guilt and shame. And and then that guilt and shame is going to lend itself to more self-hate that's going to lead into more guilt and shame that's going to, right? And then if you are an abuser, then that abuse 
will make you go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. Guilt and shame then leads to what? More anger that leads to more abuse. This is why, listen, this is why so many people who are abused end up becoming abusers despite the fact that they swear they never will. What's the perfect storm? Guilt and shame fuels anger that fuels anger and abuse and lust. Now, why is lust in this mix? Lust is in this mix because lustful intent is the dehumanization of another person. Lustful intent. I'm not talking about you think your wife is sexy. That's not lustful intent. That's a good gift from the Lord for you to enjoy rightly. Uh, Lustful intent is the dehumanization of another human being for no other purpose except for physical pleasure. So there's no concern for their soul or their emotions. And this is a two-way street in 2013. All right, then just in dudes out there doing this. All right, it's a, um, you, you don't matter outside of your physical body. You, your emotions are of no concern to me. Your spirit is of no concern to me. You have no real value other than the physical body that God has given you. It is wicked. It is abusive. People who are off the rails promiscuous have a guilt and shame issue built into anger that then has them punishing themselves by giving themselves cheaply to other people. You're not cheap. So expensive are you before the king of glory that Christ died on the cross in your stay. The king sovereign says you're unbelievably valuable. Let's, let's stop this madness. And so that's how lust is tied into this. Now, um, how does... How does then the things that we've been talking about, uh, justification, adoption, sanctification, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, how does that invade this perfect storm? Because in this moment, I mean, the wind and the waves are up, all right, the boat's being tossed about. We can't seem to get out of this storm. There is no safe harbor. Now, praise God that the same Jesus who quieted that storm quiets this storm. That the same God that quiets the wind and the waves on that boat in the Sea of Galilee also steps into anger and abuse and lustful intent and guilt and shame and he dismantles it and he quiets it so the waters stop and safe harbor is found. Now, how does that work? Well, let's take them separately. Um, How does God handle guilt in your life and in mine? Well, we've covered this. This is the idea of justification that the just judge of the universe bangs the gavel and by the blood of Christ declares us as innocent. Let me show you this because you don't look like you believe me. Colossians 2, 13 through 14 says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us, what's that word? What's that word again? Oh, I will make you feel guilt and shame, all right? Uh, All. So that's important to know. All. All of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Oh, that you would believe that all of your sins, past, present, and future, were nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ. You, You feel guilt That create in you a a feeling of unworthiness and dirtiness, a feeling of helplessness. God's response is, I've canceled the record of debt. That there's no sacrifice you can lay on his altar. It's already been paid for in full, all, all of it, past, present, and future, all of it. You walked in here busted up, broken, and guilty. 
God's paid the price for that, for those of you who believe. And, and so that handles guilt. That's the cancellation of the record of debt by the blood of Jesus Christ. But what do we do then with shame? If shame is that feeling of dirtiness that may or may not be attached to a moral code. Well, nothing drives shame away from the heart than being fully known and yet still delighted in. All right, So shame vanishes when you're known and delighted in. So both of those are important. The reason I will press hard on confession and openness among the people of God until God calls me home is the quieter you are about your struggles, the quieter you are about the fantasies of your mind, the quieter you are about where you fall short of the right ideal, the more fertile the ground is for shame to take root. And where shame grows, anger grows. And where anger grows, self-hate and the other forms of abuse can begin to grow. And so the best way to make sure shame doesn't grow is to be fully known. Is to be fully known. Don't have secrets. They betray you. Look, you're not getting away with anything. You're not getting away with anything. Well, nobody knows but me. You're wrong. There are no secrets. God knows, and, and I would bet that the fruit of your secret is weighing heavy on you. Like, how do you feel when you're laying in bed imagining someone else other than your spouse? How do you feel after they go to bed and, and you're on your computer looking in there, right? You feel great, don't you? It's invigorating. Feel awesome about yourself as you climb into bed after betraying the one that you uh, entered covenant to uh, before God Almighty. You feel awesome when you get home after abusing um, the sensibilities of some young woman or some young man. No, you don't. You feel dirty. You feel betrayed. You, you feel worthless. You feel right. No, you, you don't. But God, so what do you do about shame? Nothing drives out shame like being fully known and still delighted in. And so uh, let me show you this in two texts, and we'll chat some about it. Um, in Luke chapter 15, you have the parable of the prodigal son. So the prodigal son, uh, he takes his inheritance from his father, and the Bible tells us he goes and squanders it on prostitutes and bar hopping. All right, so dude had a great weekend in Vegas, uh, and, and everything goes wrong, uh, and he ends up uh, working in this pigsty, and things have broken so down that he's literally crawling through the filth in the pigsty and eating the food, the slop that was meant for the pigs, and then the Bible says he comes to his senses, and we have already covered that. That is a gift from God to come to our senses. And so he begins to think that even my father's servants live better than this. Maybe he'll just let me be a servant. And he crawls out of the muck and the mire and begins to head home, head hung in shame, physically filthy, in his heart feeling dirty and unloved, just hoping to be a servant to his father. And then look what happens starting in verse 20. And he arose, that's out of the pigsty, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt what? Gosh, why don't we think that about God? Why is our default that our God is not compassionate, but rather disappointed? Like the way we interact with God is that God's on the front porch going, look at this idiot. Come on home. I've got my lecture already built out. Oh, I'll let you be a servant, the servant of servants. But that's not what just happened. His father saw him and felt compassion. Now, look what happens next. 
And he ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Notice that the father is not even having that nonsense. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. Now that drives out shame. I, I know, I know where you've been, I know where you've done. Hugs him, kisses him, feels compassion in the brokenness that the son had experienced. And he puts shoes on his feet and a ring, your mind, on his hand and the best robe and killed the fatted calf. And this party gets crazy. Like the Bible tells us that from the field you could hear music and dancing. See, um, the parable of the prodigal son isn't about the prodigal son. The parable of the prodigal son is about a loving father who loved both his idiot boys. Uh, The one that wasted his inheritance on prostitutes and devoured his father's land in bar hopping and the one who thought he could be good enough by following all the rules and stayed outside the party and pouted. The father goes out to him and entreats him to come in. All that I have is yours, but this is right. Get in here. And so the parable of the prodigal son about a father's delight in his stubborn, foolish Children, but but I have thought just trying to imagine this night how awkward. I mean, yes, how loved, but how awkward does the younger son feel? I mean, here he come. He knows he's betrayed everybody. I mean, he knows he has betrayed everyone in the room. And now there's this huge party. You don't think he's a bit self conscious, not one to look people in the eyes? We have a hard time with people delighting in us. We really do. We so crave it, but we have a hard time with it. Um, one of the things we've started doing recently in our family devotional time um, is I'll have uh, one of our kids stand up on the dining room table after dinner, a family night, and then we'll all go around the room and we'll say one thing that we love about that person and we'll bless them and then we'll lay hands on that one kid and pray for them. So this past Thursday night was Nora, um, and so Nora got up in her chair, and here's what I've noticed regardless of who the kid is. They almost refuse to look you in the face when you're telling them what you love about them. There's something in us that just can't handle it. And so we're going around the room and everybody, you know, Lauren was just like, um, you, you have such energy and such vitality. You bring so much joy to our family and you're such a delight to us. And literally Nora cannot look her in the face. So then my job that night goes, look at your mom when she's talking, just look her right in her face. Nora, look at your brother, Laura, Laura, look at your sister. Look, look at daddy's face. Let's look at my face. while I say that it's, we just can't handle that we might be delighted in. Right, And this is kind of the residue of sin, shame, and guilt where there should be innocence and honor. And then again in Hebrews 2.11, I love this one. He says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. What destroys shame? Being fully known and yet still delighted. And in just a couple of weeks, we'll do baptisms across all our services. And people are going to get in the water and they will lay out aspects of their shame. Uh, And so they will say, uh, I was caught in this. I was doing this. This is something that was going on in my life. And everything from uh, those who are in same-sex relationships to those who are swingers to those who are strung out on drugs to those who are, they'll get in the water and they will testify. Now, have you thought of how crazy that is? That someone would stand in front of thousands of strangers and say, here's what I was at my worst. 
Now, what could create the type of confidence that you could say that? Well, you know, you're delighted in, in being known by forgiving God who has forgiven your guilt and whose love has driven out your shame. So you're not bragging about your shame, but rather saying how much greater Jesus is than your shame. And that's coming on October 13th or 14th or 12th or 13th, however that weekend falls. Delight, when we're fully known, drives out shame. But listen, it's hard to believe. I mean, my four-year-old can't hardly look someone in the face when they say, I love you. You are awesome. You bring a lot of joy to this family. She can't, she can't handle How much more then uh, can we not handle uh, a loving God who picks up our filthy head and says, give me the best robe. Give me the best ring. Let's put shoes on his feet. Kill the fatted calf and get the good one. Don't get that box. You roll out the good stuff. And then what? Celebrates that we're home? That's why we feel awkward in it. It does feel awkward. It doesn't feel right. This is why grace is so scandalous. It doesn't feel right. It's why um, the, the Bible says that the love of the Lord is extravagant. It's like over the top. It's like ridiculous. You know, like the son of your God, come on, dad, can I just get in my room, take a shower? Oh, no, no, no. You don't even get shower, bro. Not until you drink some good wine and eat some, some filet and, and listen to this live band we just kicked up for you. I'm going to celebrate the fact that you're home. Like, that's hard for us. We can't. But that's the thing that drives out shame. Until you get that, shame's going to be a companion. But it doesn't have to be. It's just too hard to believe. I know. God, it is. That's why I've got to ask the Holy Spirit to help us believe it. That's why I'm trying to preach it to you week in and week out. That's why I don't. Hey, have you picked up yet that I preach one sermon just out of a different text every week? Have you picked up on that yet? Uh, okay, if you haven't, then you're slow uh, because I can't be more blatant. Just one message, all right? And so uh, ultimately, this is adoption. So justification takes care of our guilt and adoption takes care of our shame. And then that leaves sanctification for us. Um, now, sanctification then is the deconstruction of false self-ideals and a replacement of what is true and right and good. Uh, you must be careful at what you put up as being heroic, right? Be careful. And, and depending on who you are, you'll probably want to be more careful around certain things, but always be careful at what you set up as the self-ideal. And, and here's what I mean. I find my heart drawn things to things at times that, that my heart should not be drawn to. Um, so um, Patterson and I have been talking lately. Um, how many of you have done the, um, you read Steve Jobs' uh, biography or you've just listened to it? Okay, three of you read. Awesome. All right. Uh, if, if you get a chance, it is a fascinating read. And I'm, I'm, this is by proxy, all right? Uh, he, here's, here's what's interesting. This dude, I, I mean, he is off the rails insane. Uh, I, I mean, cruel, vindictive, ruthless, and awesome. Did you hear me? Like, that's what happens in my heart. I'm like, man, that is ruthless. That would be awesome if it wasn't wicked and evil. <laughs> right, so this is just me putting my cards on that. Like, to be able to just walk in and go, hey, staff meeting in my office, not so fast, bleaker. I mean, that would be crazy and wicked to treat people as commodities, to act as your own God when you have full power. Be careful that you don't make stuff like that self-ideal. It's wicked. Be careful. 
the guy that has all kinds of money and, uh, and, and is, goes here and does this and accomplishes it. Be careful. Don't make that your ideal. That's not God's ideal for you. Our ideal, our picture, our model is Jesus Christ. We want to become like him. We want to be shaped and molded like him. We want to be a servant like he is a servant. We want to consider others better than ourselves as he considered uh, others better than himself despite the fact that he was God. We want to live sacrificially. We want to give joyfully. We want to lay down our lives for the good of the glory of God. This is our self-ideal, and you will fall woefully short of it, and you will be aware that you fall woefully short of it on repeat. And yet, the grace of God and the delight of God and the justification of God in Jesus Christ anchors our heart in this place where guilt and shame don't lead us to fear and anxiety, don't lead us to anger and abuse, don't lead us to lustful intent, but rather has an ever-increasing joy in our Father who delights in us despite us so that when we fall short, it will actually serve to stoke the fire of delight in God. And so then we get in a perfect storm where grace feeds passion that feeds grace that feeds passion that feeds grace that feeds passion. And that's where we'll be stuck. And those are good waters to be stuck in. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have canceled the record of debt. Thank you that right now, for those of us who are children of God, you delight in us. Pray that that would drive out our shame. Pray that as we think about the sins of the younger brother, that he devoured the father's lands with prostitutes and alcohol. That as wayward as he was, the father felt compassion for the self-righteous that the father was moved to go outside and entreat the older brother to come in. We thank you that you delight in us. The Bible says that there's rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. And for those who are in this place, and guilt and shame has them shackled heavily. where self-hate rules and reigns, where there's a perpetual giving over of themselves to things that will harm them and hurt them, that they seek out relationships where they will be used and abused, where they allow others to try to rob from them the intrinsic dignity of being made in the image of God. Holy Spirit, would you work? Would you heal? For the victims of abuse in this place, Father, might you grant freedom. Holy Spirit, help. Would you allow them to forgive the perpetrator and trust you for vengeance, lest their self-hate devour and destroy them? Where we are verbally abusive, where anger is low-grade constant in our lives, will you set us free, Holy Spirit? It's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from the Village Church, located in Texas. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about The Village Church, please visit us online at www.thevillagechurch.net.